Recently, I read the story of J.S., a 14-year-old girl from London. Tragically, J.S. had been fighting with a serious illness that became terminal. Yet, by all accounts, J.S. was a remarkable teenager and spent her final months doing some research. She decided that rather than having a burial or a cremation, she wanted to have her body cryogenically frozen and preserved in liquid nitrogen in the US. This was in the hope that in hundreds of years in the future, technology might have developed enough to be able to bring her back to life. The case went to court because due to her age, she needed both parents to agree to this, and they didn't. Her mother backed her wishes, and her maternal grandparents even raised the £37,000 required to fund it. But her father did not. He didn't want his daughter waking up in 200 years' time in a foreign country where she would have no friends or family around her and find herself in a society that she was completely out of touch with. Her father believed that even if that technology did come about, the world would be an intensely frightening experience for his daughter. Eventually, the High Court judge ruled in her favour and her body now lies in a special unit in the US along with a couple of hundred others who have been frozen like this since the first body was treated in this way in 1967. The science of this story is yet very much in doubt. But what is not in doubt is the very real fear that death causes for human beings. These were the words of J.S., this 14-year-old, that were submitted to court. I think being cryopreserved gives me a chance to be cured and woken up, even in hundreds of years' time. I don't want to be buried underground. I want to live and live longer. And I think that in the future they might find a cure and wake me up. I don't want to die, but I know I'm going to. I want to live longer. I want to have this chance. They are the tortured words of a 14-year-old girl agonizing over her mortality. But if we're honest, it's a place we've all been at some time or other. In 2016, a survey showed that 75% of people live actively fearing death. And during the pandemic, that number must only have gone up. Death is the great dread of the human race. And many of us spend our lives trying to hide those fears. In fact, if you talk to our young people at the teen cafe on this topic, you soon realise that death is more of a taboo now than it has ever been. You also see this level of denial in the adverts that we are constantly bombarded with. 
Women are to fight aging with Botox injections and anti-wrinkle cream and dieting. Middle-aged men are to join a gym, buy a fast car, trade in their wife for a younger model, all in the attempt to hold back the years. So death hurts, and we hide from it. But sometimes we are forced to face it, either through our own medical diagnosis or through the bereavement of someone we love. And it's then that all those painful questions arise. The same painful questions that J.S. asked. What will happen to me? Where will I go? What will it be like? Are these final few days all there is to my life? And these are the questions that human beings have been asking for centuries. But as we shall now see, the the answers are available. Answers not based on wishful thinking or unknown science, but on real, historical, factual events. Answers that give us hope for all that JS longed for, and much, much more. There is a promise for life. Life beyond death. Life everlasting. Life in all its fullness. This then is the hope that the whole world needs to hear. The Apostle Paul's writing in this section of 1 Thessalonians has a deeply pastoral purpose. He is writing to a young church of inexperienced Christians and he's trying to help them with some very painful questions. When Paul had founded this church in years previous, he had taught them that one day Jesus Christ would return to earth. There would be a second coming. But sadly, as the church waited for that day, some of their members had begun to die. And this was unexpected. They had thought that Jesus would be back before anything as bad as death would happen Yes, they expected hardship, they expected persecution, but they didn't expect the finality of death. So this young church is consumed by painful questions. Questions that were testing their faith to the limit. Where were their loved ones now? What would happen to them? Would they have any part on the day when Jesus returned? Are they now going to miss out on all of that? And as Paul heard this agonizing, his heart broke for them. And so he writes urgently to to reassure them and to comfort them. And he understands their very natural grief, but he wants them to hold on to hope. In fact, he says they don't need to despairingly rant and rave like what happened at the pagan funerals of the time. They can trust in God. Because all God's people have a set of promises made to them that change everything. 
Paul begins in verse 14 with the most important truth of all. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Paul goes straight to the pivotal act of all history. A fact to stand on. The real life, Jesus Christ, attested to by eyewitnesses and historical evidence, died on the cross to deal with our sin. He took our place to forgive us for all the wrongdoing and he made us right before God. And then three days later he rose again, triumphing over all evil and paving the way through death forevermore. Death is now defeated. Jesus is alive. And Paul knows this. He knows it beyond doubt because he has met Jesus. This isn't just wishful thinking or myth. It's based on the evidence of the Damascus Road. But for Paul, Christ's death and resurrection were not just a past event. They were also the revealing of what will happen to all those who belong to him. Believers who follow Christ in their life will be united to him in death and then they also will rise again. They too will triumph over the grave. They won't just be thawed out from liquid nitrogen to a whole new set of frailties, but they will be perfected. Perfected into a new physical body that will never spoil or fade, a body fulfilling the image of God. And this is the glorious promise of Easter. This is the hope for all of us who believe. But incredibly, even this is only half the story. Because Jesus is risen and alive right now, there is more yet to come. Let's finish the whole sentence of verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Forty days later he ascended into heaven and he now reigns at his father's side. Yet Jesus himself promised that one day he would return from there to fulfill all things. He will come and judge the earth. He will deal with all of sin. And the kingdom of God will begin in all its fullness with Jesus Christ reigning here among his people forevermore. A kingdom where there will be no more sickness or evil, or death. But most importantly for the current issue with the Thessalonians, when Jesus returns, he will bring with him all those who have died before that day. 
complete with their resurrection bodies. Up until the day when Jesus returns, our loved ones are resting in God's care. But when Jesus appears, so will they. All the people of God, people of all races and backgrounds and times, will be united together in the presence of the returning King. And what is interesting here is that it appears one of the most painful questions that the Thessalonians wrestled with was whether those that died before the day of Christ's return would be any worse off than those who were present and alive on earth when he came. They were concerned about fairness. Would the living have an advantage over the dead? You see, like any grieving person, they wanted the absolute best for their loved one who was recently deceased. So it's really interesting that the next few verses, verses 15 to 18, is Paul giving absolute assurance that when Christ returns, everyone will be treated equally. There will be no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. And to confirm this, Paul begins to describe what it will be like when Jesus appears. Now, clearly here, Paul is taking on an impossible task. He is trying to describe the indescribable. He is trying to describe an event of such magnitude, such importance, that human language simply doesn't have the vocabulary to do it justice. This is the end of the world as we know it. This is the beginning of a new age. We don't have the language to describe that. So Paul resorts to the only option that he has available to him. He resorts to using metaphor. He uses colourful word pictures to get his point across. He uses an image that his readers in Thessalonica would have immediately understood. You see, the Greek word translated for the Lord's coming in verse 15 is the word parousia. And at the time, parousia was a very technical term. It described something very specific. In the first century, when a Roman emperor won a great battle victory, he would return in a great procession. He would come back to his home city. He would come back victorious to take up residence with his people once more. And on these great state occasions, all the excited residents of the city would rush out to the city gate to meet him on the way. And there they would be cheering all the way home on the roadside. This is a parousia. This is the metaphor that Paul is using. An official royal visit after a great battle victory. I guess the closest we have today would be something like when our great British athletes return home from the Olympics. They get greeted at the airport. and they, When they show off their medals, the crowds cheer wildly. 
Or when a football team has won a major cup and they embark on an open-top bus tour through the city. And as the gleaming trophy is paraded for all to see, the crowds chant and dance in the streets. This is what Paul is picturing here. Only this time, the victor is Jesus. And we're not talking about a football match. We're talking about a battle being won over sin and evil and death. And the capital city that Jesus is returning home to is the planet Earth. Jesus is coming back home. He is coming back as the triumphant king to take up residence and reign here forevermore. The word perusia then shows us that heaven is not a place up in the clouds where we float around playing harps. The kingdom of God will be fulfilled when heaven comes to earth. God loves his creation far too much just to ditch it. He's going to renew it and he's going to restore it. And Jesus is going to come back with a physical body. And we are going to have physical bodies because we're going to need them to steward God's new heaven and new earth as he always intended us to do. But the importance of what Paul is teaching here comes out in verse 17. When Christ returns to earth, those crowds lining the roadside, cheering him home, will be made up of both us and those who have already died and gone before us. Together and equally together. All of God's people will cheer and accompany him home. The whole of the church, those long dead, those still alive, will play their part in the celebrations. It is then a wonderful, wonderful day to look forward to. The victorious Christ returning to earth. All believers from all of time celebrating and worshipping him for the battle victory he has won over sin, evil and death. God's blessing will be poured out and we will live together with God in peace for eternity. No wonder Paul writes in verse 18, therefore encourage each other with these words. Yes, of course, there'll be grief and sadness when people die. That's right, it's natural. But God will come one day and he'll put all those wrongs right and all that pain will turn to joy. Because as Christians, we don't live just to die. We die to live this is the hope that we have and in Paul's mind it is guaranteed by the historical reality of Christ's birth life, death and resurrection this is the hope we're to live with this is the hope that we are to share with the world and it's to these thoughts of living in hope and sharing hope that I want to finish with 
Why is it that the church traditionally remembers the second coming in the run-up to Christmas? Well, it's for a very good reason. 2,000 years ago, the people of Israel were waiting in hope for the age-old promises of the Messiah to be fulfilled. God had promised them a king who would come to save them. And for centuries they'd waited. They'd waited and they'd waited through hardship and heartache, but they'd waited. And when Jesus was eventually born in Bethlehem, all of those centuries of promises, dim as though they had come to seem, were proved to be true. God kept his word. And here we are today, again, waiting. Waiting for Christ to come. And just like those Jews 2,000 years ago, in the hardship and the struggle and the pandemic, our faith gets stretched to the limit. Yet because we know God kept his promises that first Christmas time. We know he will keep them again now. Yet waiting in hope of things to come doesn't mean we just sit around doing nothing. And the right to Christmas, we're not just sit twisting our thumbs, are we? Instead, we actively do something to prepare. We write cards, we wrap presents, we buy decorations, we get the food in, we send out invitations. We exhaust ourselves making sure everything is right for the big day. Well, so too Paul thinks that we should be preparing for this coming of Jesus. And this is what the final verses are about. The first 11 verses of chapter 5. Paul tells his readers that they shouldn't waste time trying to work out when Jesus is going to return because absolutely no one knows. He will return like a thief in the night, Paul says. Instead, believers are to use their time in a much more hopeful way, a way that benefits others. Paul has just described the hope for all the world. The promise that we saw in our opening example of JS that is desperately needed by our world today. Followers of Jesus have a responsibility to live in a way that spreads this good news. And Paul says that believers should live as children of light. That doesn't mean we should refuse to do night shifts or only come out in the day. It means we are to live in light of God's blessing, to live in light of God's promise, and to go out there and make a difference. It is God's love that has the power to light up the darkness of our world and the despair of people like J.S. So we are to live waiting for Jesus to come in ways that show God to others. We're not to act like the darkness of our world. We're not to get caught up in the corruption and the violence and the drunkenness and the disorder. We are to live radiating hope. Paul believes as we wait for Christ, we are to shine like a light, a light into the dark world. Because in our heart, we have peace and hope and joy 
and a promise that can never be defeated. And that is the light that the world needs. And Paul knows at times it will be difficult. As we take on evil and darkness, at times evil and darkness will fight back. And it's then that we'll need to call on God for his help and we'll need to seek the support of our fellow believers. But despite the dangers, Paul is insistent. We are to live as children of light, showing Jesus in our words and our actions. So as we close and turn to prayer, let's ask ourselves two questions. Are we consumed by the darkness and the fear of death? If we are, look at the resurrection. Look forward to the coming of Jesus and make the choice again to follow Christ because in him we have a hope that conquers death. And then secondly, as followers of Jesus, how can we live as children of light on Isla this week? How can we live in a way that shares this incredible hope with those that live around us.